0: Felix Oberholzer G. is the Andreas Andreessen Professor of Business Administration at Harvard Business School. An award winning instructor, his academic work has been published in the very best peer reviewed journals of his profession. He currently teaches competitive strategy in executive education programs, such as the Harvard General Management Program. He also serves as faculty chair of the Senior Executive Leadership Program for China and the Driving Digital Strategy Program. He is a co-host of the popular HBR Presents podcast, After Hours. His most recent book, Better, Simpler Strategy, is one of the most compelling, complete, and well simple strategy books I have ever read. He shows how successful companies that are in very similar businesses, say Home Depot and Lowe's, can dramatically outperform their rivals. At a time when rapid technological change and global competition conspired to upend traditional ways of doing business, these companies pursue radically simplified strategies focused on value. In this podcast, Felix breaks down why focusing on differentiating our value proposition for customers misses half of the opportunity. We should be equally focused on employees and suppliers. Why we so often confuse compliments with substitutes. For example, we thought music streaming would kill the music business, but it actually had the opposite effect. And he offers a simple, immediately actionable framework for designing a strategy that will maximize the value of your firm. Ladies and gentlemen, Felix Oberholzer-G. Felix, thank you so much for taking your time to be here to talk with us.
1: Delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. So this is a
0: question I ask all of my guests. And even though we have strategy experts, I never get the same answer, which is great. What is your definition of strategy?
1: So I describe strategy as the company's way to create value for one of three groups customers, employees or suppliers. Tell me your plan how you create value and you describe your strategy. Interesting.
0: So it is sort of a multi-stakeholder approach
1: if you will. Yes, and it's tied to analysis that shows if you look at the sources of financial success, it's really value creation. Of course, as strategists, we pay close attention to financials and profitability and we sometimes forget, or it's not so easy to see always, that the financials tell us only half the story. They don't tell us where the profitability of the company comes from. And it comes from this ability to create value. So one of the things I talk about in the book is that value creation should always be first and foremost on your mind. And sometimes it has counterintuitive consequences in that you can do the right thing by not selling. Companies that have incentive systems, that have KPIs, that include not selling because the product or the service may not be right for a particular customer.
0: Yes. Yes. Yeah. And we're going to get into your framework and some of the implications of it as well. So I want to dig into the value-based strategy that I know you for, but you've made contributions also in other areas, like in academia. Before we go into value-based strategy, what are you known for in the academic spheres?
1: I guess there's two things. One is I've done some research on complementarity and substitutability. And the basic idea there is that when you look back, it's always easy to see whether products or services are complements or substitutes. But when you're in the moment, that is actually a really hard thing to do. So if I ask you today, blockchain and financial services, are those companies or substitutes? And, you know, we could probably have an interesting conversation where we should come out. I have work that showed early on that digitization of the music industry was not a bad thing for the music industry, that the rapid decline that we saw in the music industry just around the time when Napster was created, that was just a timing coincidence. The early impact that we all thought, oh my God, piracy, the world, as we know, it comes to an end. That effect was much more muted than people had assumed. And I have similar work, more workforce management, having people think about how you want to be careful with economic incentives because it's sort of a double-edged sword in that on the one hand, they can be really powerful. However you set your incentives, that's what people will do. And I've shown that it also crowds out intrinsic motivation. So the kinds of things that people would do anyway, because they're public spirited, because they believe in the mission, the purpose of the company, you tend to undermine those forces by setting explicit incentives. And so that managers, executives have to be cognizant often very careful about how they actually use incentives. It's always hard what other people think about your work, but I would say those are probably two things I'm known for.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I can see how that trade-off between explicit and intrinsic incentives plays a role in your model. I'd like you to actually Lay that out for us the willingness to sell. Could you just walk us through your framework in your book about and
1: what value based strategy is? Yes. Yeah. Happy to. So one of the things I really like about value-based strategy is that it's a really simple approach because it's simple. It's an approach that can easily be implemented in organizations of any size. There are two key ideas. One is value creation for customers. And that is just ways to increase willingness to pay for your customers. Willingness to pay is the most a customer would ever be willing to pay for a product or a service. So this is a little different from just going out and doing a survey with customers. What would you like? Because typically what we get back if we ask that question is, oh, I want everything and I want it for free. not so helpful when you think about resource allocation. So we want to make sure that we do the kinds of things that increase value, where value is the difference between willingness to pay, what's the most the customer would ever be willing to pay, say, for a better camera in your smartphone and the actual price that we charge.
0: Just to anchor in negotiation frameworks, would that be your BATNA, your best alternative to a negotiation? That's exactly right.
1: Yes, Yeah. As you know, the there are many, many similarities between negotiation situations where you're also thinking about opportunities to create value and value-based strategy where we do something similar for the firm as a whole. I find that executives have excellent intuition when it comes to willingness to pay. There are some interesting wrinkles that I'm happy to talk about, but generally speaking, I don't think I have many new things to say when it comes to willingness to pay and how to think about it. Willingness to sell, the opportunity to create value for employees employees. employees and suppliers, That's for some reason less intuitive. And I'll give you one example for employees. So think of a person who currently doesn't work for your company, but you would like her to join. And you're writing the offer letter and you're thinking about what's the minimum compensation that I could get away with? And she would still join my company. That minimum compensation is her willingness to sell. And it's not what you will actually pay her, but it's a great way to measure how attractive is the job that you offer. Because if the job is dream come true, I always wanted to work at this company in this particular function, then of course, willingness to sell will fall. So better jobs have lower willingness to sell. If the job is boring, maybe physically very demanding, you'd have to compensate more generously and willingness to sell will increase. And so it's a great way to measure the quality of the match between a particular person and a job at a company. And so creating value for employees employee involves driving down willingness to sell. And then the difference between how much I actually get paid and that willingness to sell, that is value for employees. That's how you compete effectively in the market for talent.
0: Yes. And I imagine you could segment employees and with a high value given to employees, you can track better employees
1: and better talent. You will have less churn. People will make investments in their job and so on and so on. So In a way, it's very similar to what we do for customers, except we don't typically think about it that way on the employee or on the supplier side. By the way, the same is true for the supplier. I think of someone who rents office space, what's the minimum rent that you have to pay that person in order order to be a contender for the office space. That minimum rent that the owner of the office space expects, that's the supplier's willingness to sell. And the trick is to find ways to decrease willingness to sell of suppliers. If you do that successfully, there's more value on the table. And then that total value gets split three ways. Some of it goes to customers. Some of it goes to employees. And the middle wedge on that ruler, you get to keep. And so the question is, you and I, we know many companies that create amazing values. So think of insurance companies. Insurance companies, as a rule, have a very hard time covering their cost of capital. So they create enormous value. But they don't get to keep that much. What determines how much you get to keep? The degree of differentiation. If your value stick is like everybody else's value stick, think of the problem that the customer has, right? I'm seeing like five different products. The value stick is absolutely identical. How would I ever choose? I look at price. So sometimes I meet executives and they will tell me, you know, the reason that we have a hard time being really profitable is because our customers are so price sensitive. We raise prices just by a little bit and the volume response is just astonishing. And I'm always thinking, well, it's not really the customers, it's you. If your value stick is exactly like everybody else's value stick, how do you expect customers to choose? Of course they choose based on price. Every time you imitate, every time you copy, even a good idea, you increase pricing pressures in your industry because there's less to choose from. Interesting.
0: Yeah. So I was thinking originally as willingness to pay and willing to sell as kind of bargaining power, but that's not the case. This is first maximizing the value and then your bargaining position may depend on how differentiated
1: you are from the other offers. Yes. That's a beautiful way of saying it. So you have willingness to pay and willingness to sell. The difference is that the value that you create, and then you set prices and you decide how much to pay your talent. And that divides up the value. And we have interesting mathematical models that talk about how the value gets divided up. But in a nutshell, much of it depends on the degree of differentiation from other firms with other companies. Do. You have a great example in the book that I think
0: illustrates this differentiation. You talk about buying flowers for a friend.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. So I use this example because I think it shows how once you have value orientation in your company, that value orientation shows up in lots and lots of places, even in sometimes mundane decisions. And the story is I have a friend who lives in Los Angeles and I sent her flowers for her birthday. And one year I forgot. I don't know exactly what happened. It's usually in my calendar, but maybe I didn't pay attention. So I noticed a couple of days later, oh my God, it was her birthday, I didn't send flowers. So I called this flower store and I ordered my flowers. It's late afternoon and the salesperson asks should we send the flowers today or is tomorrow morning good enough? When I say, well, you know, it's a little embarrassing. I forgot my friend's birthday. It'd be really great if you could send them as quickly as possible. And her response really surprised me. She goes, should we take the blame? Should we say it was our fault that the flowers didn't get sent? And of course I didn't, I did not want her to lie for me, but I thought it was so interesting how in a really seamless way she thought about value creation opportunities for the customer in these probably unusual circumstances. And that's what I've seen when I did the research for the book. That's what I've seen across many organizations, across many companies. Once you have this mindset that is all about value creation, it then shows up in really big initiatives, really big projects that come from top management. But it also shows up in myriad of ways in the small decisions that everybody makes every day. And the benefits is that you earn the customer's trust, you earn their loyalty. We feel good about dealing with companies that really have value creation as their main engine of financial performance.
0: You can see how that value orientation then applies across the entire company and across the entire stick. Yeah.
1: Everything. Yeah. And it gets, I mean, even in this example, you know, what happens next is like I get an email a couple of days ahead of my friend's birthday. And of course, I never, ever thought about buying flowers from another store because I know they're thinking about my willingness to pay. Yes.
0: I have so many questions and I know we're kind of reaching the top of our time with you. There is one question that I have that I don't know if you've thought about or you have an answer to, but I'm just going to throw it at you and we'll just see what happens. We have compliments at the top of the stick and the bottom of the stick. And that starts looking like an ecosystem. So I could see an ecosystem, your role in each ecosystem creating this value. How do you think about how much of that value you get to capture? And I'm thinking about, say, Uber and Uber Eats, the food delivery, right? They're getting a backlash as we're recording this now because they're extracting so much value that restaurants aren't able to make money from it. And many of the strategists that listen to this, they're working in these ecosystems. And the big question for them is, what's the right amount of value to
1: capture? How do I think about that? It's such a fantastic question. I think it's essentially impossible to overestimate the importance of compliments compliments are everywhere and we've gotten used to talking about these ecosystems mostly in sort of the tech and internet space but actually every product like if any of the listeners knows a product where there's no compliment i'd love to have an example i don't i can think of anything and so say if i ask you what's your willingness to pay for a car i don't know you're telling me forty thousand dollars whatever like whatever that number is now think of a car without compliments no roads No gas stations, no repair shops, no GPS. We never really think about complements, but they're everywhere. Our willingness to pay for products and services always reflects the availability of these complementarities. And then, of course, you have the question that you ask. Once the complementer helps create value, the complementer is sort of a frenemy, right? Think about the lawsuit between Apple and Epic Games, Do they jointly create value? Oh, yes, absolutely. Do they battle in the courtroom around who gets what share of that value? That's also true. And so one interesting difference, I think, is if you produce complements in-house, you get to shift profit pools between these complements. Apple is maybe the most dramatic example now where they kept prices in the app store low, knowing that if I offer a complement at low prices, willingness to pay for the other side goes up. So they earned these amazing margins on the phone. Now, what's been true for a little while is that the phone is just not as differentiated as it used to be. What does Apple, smart company that it is, what do they do? They bring down prices. You see the margins on the iPhone have maybe declined by 15, 20% or so. And the margins in the app store go through the roof. Why is that I take profit from where it's hotly contested on the hardware side to a place where I have more market power. But then to your earlier point, that market power, of course, you get pushback. Epic Games and many others now complain that actually the share of value is not quite what they expect. And I find in conversations with executives that do this really well is there's almost like a split attitude. On the one hand, I love collaborating with complimenters. and I treat them as my friends, I treat them as my partners. We do the very best we can to create the single biggest pie we can imagine. But then... Then I'm not personally disappointed if in fact... You now come back and you say, and I want a bigger share than I want to concede. That, of course, is again like a question of how differentiated are you relative to everyone else? If I have that really unique video game that no one else has, I get a better share than someone who's run off the mill. But I often see when things spiral down between complimenters, the way they have between Epic Games and Apple, it's a kind of animosity that seems naive. Did you really think the complimenter was your friend? No, of course not the complementer in the end is an entity that is out to capture as much value as they possibly can. When Spotify created that famous program for people who write the songs, giving more visibility to the creators, it was a really beautiful idea and they put on a great show. And then you saw how the creators, when they wanted better copyright terms, were personally bitterly disappointed about the fact that Spotify didn't side with them. And that's just the difference between value creation and value capture. We're partners in creation, we're competitors capture. You've got to think about both of these sides in order to really do this well and build an amazing ecosystem.
0: That makes a lot of sense. We could dig into that. But given the time we have, just two more questions. What would be a favorite framework or tool that you would like people to know about?
1: Oh, I don't have to think very long about that. I think value maps are an amazing tool. In fact, maybe about the last third of the book is all about implementation because I wanted to write something where people not only get the basic idea, but they can take these ideas and then go back to their organization. And a really critical step is to start thinking about what are the value drivers? What are the determinants of willingness to pay and willingness to sell? And value maps are just a really simple, really powerful way to show how you perform on relevant value drivers relative to the competition. And it's so interesting because One of the things that you see is they help you determine corporate scope. If value maps for different segments of customers or different parts of your workforce look very different, you will have a hard time being the cheerleader, being really good at satisfying those needs. So it tells you something about which products, which geographies can you easily compete in. It always poses this question, like which is the hardest question about trade-offs. What are the value drivers where you decide, I'm going to disappoint my customers and I'm to disappoint my talent. you know.
0: Intentionally.
1: Intentionally. Ambitious, intelligent people like us. Of course, we know we can't do everything, but at the same time, making up our mind what we're not going to do is like, oh my God, it's like the hardest thing on the planet. And so value maps really show when you have a value proposition that doesn't have really big trade-offs. And then maybe the third thing that often falls out of it is this intuition to catch up with the competition. I see someone else who's had a great idea for a product or did something really amazing. And of course, what is my intuition? My intuition says, oh, that's a really great idea. I should also do the same. And then of course you see how the value sticks and the value maps converge and then price goes up in importance. And it's a data-driven approach to thinking about resource allocation that in my book, you know, whenever I work with companies, it is the single most powerful thing that I've done with organizations.
0: Just to help our readers visualize that, I probably won't get this exactly right, but I think of you stack rank the elements of value that your particular customer segment cares about, and then you rank your performance one to ten, and your competitor's performance one to ten. And basically, you want to outperform on the things at the top by underperforming on the things at the bottom. Yeah, so yeah. What I love about what you've done is you've now applied that also on the other end of the stick.
1: That's right. So. In the market for talent, you do the same thing. And, you know, I am not exactly sure why this is, but when I have, say, conversations about differentiation with chief marketing officers, that's, of course, you know, it's a foregone conclusion. Of course, you want to be different, and you know, we're sophisticated about how we do this. When I ask chief human research officers, what's your compensation policy? Almost all the time, people will say, we pay market. Imagine anyone who sells at premium prices would say, oh, we have a premium product, but we sell at market prices. That makes no sense. What I find particularly interesting is when you then look at the data, say the Bureau of Labor Statistics data, you find that, no, there is actually differentiation in the market for talent also, but somehow we're shy to talk about it. And it's always puzzled me a little bit. And so say, take hybrid work policies. You would think this moment is a moment where you see a thousand flowers bloom in that every company invents its own version of workplace flexibility. That's not what I see. I see most companies looking around and doing things that are quite similar to what everybody else is doing. If all my competitors ask people to come back two days a week, that's probably what I'm going to do. So, this sense of differentiation that is so intuitive to us on the services or product side is much less intuitive to us on the talent side. And I don't really know where it comes from, but it's an interesting observation to think about. Yeah.
0: I think as companies start flipping, which I feel like they are flipping the priority of their stakeholders from customers towards employees, then maybe we could start deploying some of that thinking. On the back end.
1: Yeah. You know, that's another completely fascinating discovery. I grew up sort of in the academic world with this notion of stuck in the middle, that the worst mistake that you can make as a strategist if you try to have higher willingness to pay and low cost at one at the same time. Remember that
0: notion? The kind of porter's generic strategies, if you will.
1: Yes, exactly. I now find that is just not true. There are dozens and dozens and dozens of companies that have dual advantages. In fact, I always encourage every company if If you have a great idea how to lower willingness to sell, think about ways you can also use that same play to increase willingness to pay and vice versa. And I find in services in particular, have you ever gotten amazing service from an employee who wasn't engaged? No, of course not. So what does that mean? Oh, you have an advantage in willingness to sell and an advantage in willingness to pay. So whatever the merits of stuck in the middle way back when, right now, the most successful companies, I see time after time time that they have dual advantages. And I advise companies to really seek out these dual advantages. They come in many different forms, but they're readily available, I think, to many organizations.
0: I love how you've pulled together such accessible tools into one framework. What is the right way for people to learn from you, connect with you? Certainly by your book, Better, Simpler Strategies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anything else we can do to connect with you and learn? Yes.
1: Yeah, so I have to say almost everything that is interesting in the book, I learned from executives and practitioners. So if you have ideas, if you've done amazing things, if you see an insurmountable problem, reach out. I'm easy to find. Much of my teaching at Harvard Business School is in executive education. So if you're so inclined, come and see what courses we might offer. I'm very active on LinkedIn. I'm more than happy. Like, If you want to reach out, if you have questions, if the book somehow fascinated you or disappointed you, I would love to learn about it.
0: Thank you so, so much for being here with me. I wish we could spend another couple hours, but there are ways for people to deepen their mastery of what you've laid out.
1: Thank you for being here. I so enjoyed my time with you. Thank you for a fabulous conversation.
0: Thank you to our guests. Thank you to our producers, Karina Reyes and Zach Nest, our editor and the rest of the team. If you like what you heard, please follow, download and subscribe. I'm your host, Kaihan Krippendorf. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next week with another episode of OutThinkers.